0: Pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word now, I pray that it would cause us to stand all the more secure on the rock that is Jesus Christ, especially as we look at a world that is always changing, that is always slipping and shifting, and we see how foolish it is uh, for so many people to constantly shift from one hope to another without resting on that rock that has stood for thousands of years. May we look at him and his salvation all the clearer this morning, delight in it all the more, that we might rest in him and hope in him uh, as his kingdom is shown to us in your word and as we hope for its future appearing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, this morning we're going to join with uh, the many other churches that take this week to look at, to celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, roughly a week before the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday that we will celebrate together on Friday and Sunday. Historically, the church has, has rightly singled out Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a kind of overture to the great salvific events, his atonement and resurrection, that we celebrate at Easter. And this entry into Jerusalem by Jesus really is one of the most historically significant events in human history. This is a bigger deal than Caesar crossing the Rubicon or a bigger deal than the Allies landing in Europe at Normandy. This is the culmination of the Old Testament prophecies, which go back to those promises God made to David and to Abraham, even to Adam and Eve when they left the Garden of Eden, and its significance can be felt to eternity. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. We will read Matthew's account of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. The gospel authors recognize how significant this event is. This is not the first time Jesus has ever been in Jerusalem. But this particular coming, what it says about Jesus, is in many ways a culmination of his prior ministry. So our first point this morning is this. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem unequivocally announces that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah promised by God to his people. This is the undeniable announcement that this is indeed the Messiah that the prophets proclaimed would come. This event preaches, it proclaims, even to us, that nobody who knew Jesus or saw his ministry could say that he was only a zealot, a political figure, a great moral teacher. One of the central goals all through the life and ministry of Jesus building up to the cross is to establish a clear picture of who he is. An undeniable demonstration that he is the Messiah. His ministry very carefully, very meticulously, very deliberately fulfilled prophecy after prophecy. He was shown in his birth to be the Son of God as well as the Son of Man. He's a descendant of David. He comes from Bethlehem, and yet he also comes from Nazareth, from Egypt, even. He was preceded by John the Baptist, proclaiming as a voice in the wilderness. And then in his ministry, he demonstrated repeatedly both the character and the power of the Messiah. He taught and demonstrated the reality of himself in his life and ministry. And the four eyewitness accounts that we have in the Gospels are careful to show us not only what Jesus is doing, how he's demonstrating who he is, but how people are responding to it. We experience this shock and awe that constantly follows Jesus. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons, and they know who he is, and they're terrified of him. We see the disciples who themselves become increasingly terrified as they encounter Jesus in his power, in who he is as he's walking on water, he's calming the storm, he's feeding thousands of people with one lunch. Even those Pharisees, They're so desperate to deny who Jesus is. They're looking at anything that they can find and they are forced to commit these increasingly egregious heresies to try and explain away how Jesus could be doing what he's doing, how he could be who he is. And we're meant to watch as those accusations get increasingly ridiculous and delusional even as they become more wicked. Jesus' own teaching depended on him being the Messiah. Jesus wasn't like Socrates or Confucius where the ideas were what mattered and they could have been shared or taught by anybody. Jesus taught about a coming kingdom which we trade this whole world for, our whole lives for, so that we might be saved from the wrath of God by a sacrifice of his son and have an eternal place in his kingdom forever. This teaching is a lie and totally useless if Jesus is not the Messiah. So all the while, more and more people are following him. They're recognizing that Jesus is clearly more than a rabbi or a zealot. All of this is building up to this final miracle which John records right before the triumphal entry where Jesus Raises Lazarus from the dead, where he demonstrates that he has control even over life and death. And John tells us that many of the crowds that gathered to Jesus around that miracle are with him as he enters Jerusalem. So by the time Jesus reaches the city, before he enters the gates, he has made this undeniable case for his messiahship. That he is exactly the man, the only possible man who could fulfill all of God's promises to his people. So now that the case has been made, he can enter Jerusalem as this undisputed heir to the line of David, even the one who would fulfill God's promises for an eternal kingship from David's line. Think back on the sermons that we have heard the last little while in Chronicles. Think back on the longing that they show in God's people for another David, to have a Messiah reigning in peace and righteousness again. They longed for that as the kingdom crumbled around them as they were sent off into exile. And now here he is. The king has returned, and he is entering Jerusalem. And he's entering Jerusalem on a donkey, a further fulfillment of prophecies made about David's greater descendant. The crowd accompanying him, many of whom have just seen Lazarus raised from the dead, agree with the case that Jesus has made. They rush to get anything that they can to throw down before him as he enters the city. This isn't some visiting dignitary who's got to bring his own red carpet and heralds or where the local rulers have got to drag people out to try and make it look like everybody's really excited he's here. The people themselves are desperate that this be the entrance of a king. we got to find things to throw down. We shout and we proclaim, that because this is clearly our king that is coming. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David, and he is entering the city of the throne of David. As he enters... They shout, not only declaring who he is, but what they hope, what they know from the prophets that he is meant to accomplish. They cry out, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is an imperative to save, to save now, save quickly, bring salvation to us. It's not unlike the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt As they call up to God, save us from our slavery. Hear us now, please. This crowd is asking this of Jesus as the son of David. They are fully assured now, this is the Messiah. So now we are calling on the Messiah to do what God has promised he would do. Save us. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is quoted from Psalm 118, the psalm that we began in our call to worship. I want to go back to Psalm 118 and read verses 14 through 26. Psalm 118, verses 14 to 26. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Let's just finish it here. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine on us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So you can see in verse 26, the words of the crowd... When they call out, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're referencing this psalm, and it talks about the righteous coming in to the city. We see the triumphal entry reflected in this psalm as Jesus leads his people into Jerusalem. And the joyful entrance into the city is a celebration in Psalm 118, that God delivers his people, that he will deliver the righteous. He will preserve their lives so that the psalmist can say, I will not die, but I will live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So the crowd is right to quote this psalm as they sing Hosanna to Jesus. We even get a hint here of Jesus' divinity because in the psalm, it is to God himself that the psalmist writes, save us, save, we pray, O Lord. So Jesus is the one sent by God, as we see here, and God himself sent to bring our salvation about. But the psalm points us towards the reality that Jesus was bringing a greater salvation than even many of those who called out hosanna had expected or hoped for. Psalm 118 gives us a hint of how this salvation will come about. We hear in the psalm that the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. Peter references this psalm in his first epistle, and he explains that Jesus is the rejected stone. The one who God sends to save is the stone that is rejected. Rejected even by the builders, by many of those people who believed they were hoping for the salvation of God's Messiah. In fact, it was this misunderstanding among the people about who the Messiah was and what he would do which led largely to the rejection of Jesus. So this is our next point this morning. Let's consider some of the misconceptions about Jesus' messianic ministry. Despite this exciting affirmation from the crowd that Jesus is indeed the saving son of David, we immediately can get a hint that there's some confusion about who that Messiah is and what he's come to do. When the crowds are asked who Jesus is by onlookers, they reply, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is true insofar as it goes. But unless they were fully acknowledging that Jesus was the prophet that Moses promised, who would be like him, this suggests that they might not have fully yet understood the full thrust of his ministry. Now, the other gospel accounts of the triumphal entry are more clear on some of the confusion surrounding what the Messiah would do, what kind of salvation he would bring. John tells us that Jesus' own disciples did not fully recognize what they were witnessing. John 12, 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that the things, these things had been written about him and had been done To him. We can see some of the disciples' own misconceptions about what it meant for Jesus to be the Davidic Messiah in a conversation which Matthew records right before the triumphal entry. So if we go back just to chapter 20, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. But to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus recognizes that the disciples are taking their picture of his kingdom and his kingship from the Gentile kingdoms around them. They're looking at the messianic kingdom through this worldly power dynamic that they've become very accustomed to. Gentiles expect their kings to be selfish tyrants who crush the weak and take whatever power that they can get by force. And this is a good thing if you were the one next to the king, if you continued to please him and you properly smeared all of your competitors. These were the kind of rulers that the disciples could understand. This is the expectation that many people carried for the Davidic Messiah as he entered Jerusalem. And of course, at this time, the Jews are presently crushed under the thumb of Rome, perhaps the best example in history of this Gentile power dynamic. And that would have only increased their expectation that the Messiah would be like those great conquerors that they already knew, Xerxes, Alexander the Great, the Caesars. That would have bled into how they read these Old Testament prophecies, which did indeed promise that the Davidic king would lay low God's enemies and lift up God's shamed people. But Jesus' disciples and likely many of the people in Jerusalem missed the full thrust of what the Messiah had come to accomplish Jesus tells his disciples that his kingdom really will indeed be one that lifts up the heads of his shamed people. The suffering and the broken hearted. And it will do it through the leaders of Jesus' kingdom themselves becoming slaves and servants. And this will be exemplified first and foremost in the saving work of the Messiah that establishes that kingdom who gives his life as a ransom for many. This is exactly the Messiah that the Old Testament prophecies were pointing to. This is exactly the Messiah that Jesus taught that he would be. And this is the Messiah he was declaring himself to be when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day. A king riding a donkey was not an unprecedented picture in Jesus' day. Kings, including David, had donkeys that they rode. As far back as Genesis, Jacob's blessing to Judah knits a donkey into the promise that kings will come from Judah's line. Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of, be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So for those Jews who knew the Old Testament, to see Jesus on a donkey would not have discouraged their idea that this was clearly the promised king. But what exactly did the donkey itself convey? Kings had donkeys to ride on when they were deliberately demonstrating that they were not prepared to go to war, often that they were at peace. Jesus was declaring that he was coming not to wage the war against Rome many were hoping for. His salvation would not come through a contest of strength. It would come through acts of humility and peace. Is this because he was too weak? Because he was fearful he couldn't take on Rome? Of course not. In Luke's account, we hear what the Pharisees thought of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. We've already noted the Pharisees... Uh, were not just confused about Jesus' Messiahship. They had made it clear in their minds that they rejected His claim to that title. They wholeheartedly bought into this Gentile power dynamic, and they had already cast their lot with Rome and the current rulers of Jerusalem. They were afraid to lose that status quo. Their hope is in their own strength and power, and so they tell Jesus that He had better silence this crowd. Luke says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus is not riding into Jerusalem on a donkey because he is going to be less of a Messiah than people hoped for. Jesus declares here that he isn't just entering the city as the king of Jerusalem. He is the one worthy to wear the crown of all creation. He's the one through whom all things were made, and he is worthy of the praises of the crowd along with the praises of the stones and the fields and the trees. Jesus is the one who could have jumped off the temple when Satan tempted him and had angels bear him up. He's the one who could have got down off the cross. He's the one who could have been born in a palace. And he is the one who could have ridden in on a war horse and marched it to Rome and crushed the head of Caesar under his foot. By riding in on a donkey, Jesus is demonstrating that he is more, not less of a king than the one that they were expecting. That his kingdom would come to be more not less than the one that his people hoped he would inaugurate. And the way that he was establishing his kingdom would be greater, not weaker, than the liberation that they had hoped for. And it would mean his rejection by his people. Much is made of the idea that the crowds praising Jesus in Jerusalem that day were the same people who called for his execution. This isn't clearly said in the Gospels. What is clearly shown is that Jerusalem itself, the city, welcomes Jesus as king and then later rejects him. This is the city of the temple and the throne of David the city that seems for a moment to offer Jesus a throne, then casts him out as a scapegoat and offers him as a sacrifice. Much like Caiaphas, who unwittingly prophesied that Jesus would be the substitute to die for the people, Jerusalem itself, by rejecting Jesus, offers him up as a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people. Just like the sacrifices that were brought to Jerusalem to be offered in the temple. It is by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah they wanted him to be that the people offer him up to God as the Messiah that God has set him apart to be. This is the Messiah Jesus promised his disciples he would be. So much greater than the Gentile rulers that they wanted him to model himself after. The cross the salvation that would come through suffering as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, that is what many people had missed in the city. They were so eager to lift him up in the world that they despised the thought of a humble servant Messiah who promised a kingdom that would also call his followers to humble service. They hated that idea of a king offering that kind of kingdom, even if that kingdom was greater and more lasting than any worldly empire that the people in those crowds might have been hoping for. The Son of Man was not entering Jerusalem as a conquering king that would carry his people to victory over Rome. He would, in fact, lead them to victory over sin and death by undertaking a salvation that no human ruler was capable of or willing to offer to his people. Jesus would bear the punishment of the citizens of his kingdom on a cross, even bearing the scorn, their scorn and accusation, to die in their place. That is how he would lift up the head of the suffering. By his suffering for them, he would offer all of them who trusted in him an eternal place in his kingdom. He would be the stone that they rejected. And through their rejection, he would establish even for them, if they trusted in him, an eternal kingdom that rested secure with him with him as the cornerstone. This is exactly the Messiah that Jesus was announcing himself to be when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The king who came peacefully, but still came to achieve victory. Not just a victory to bring peace to Jerusalem, but to bring peace that would go out from Jerusalem to the whole world. Matthew shows us this connection by quoting the prophecies which Jesus fulfilled when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Matthew says that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew is, in fact, quoting two related prophecies here, one from Isaiah and one from Zechariah. Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12 says, Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You can see Isaiah looking forward to the triumphal entry of the Messiah here. And when he arrives in Isaiah's prophecy, he is announced as the salvation of the people. Isaiah says that the Messiah will make Jerusalem to be called the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord. This points to a salvation that doesn't just deliver Jerusalem from her enemies. Jerusalem had enjoyed some amount of political supremacy in the past under David and Solomon. But she still suffered from her own sin. It was not just the failure of their kings, but the sins of the people that brought Israel from the glory of Solomon to the exile of Babylon. So the Messiah that brings salvation, true, lasting salvation to Jerusalem, will need to be one that delivers her from her own sin, which redeems her from the punishment that her sin deserved. This is what can bring true, lasting peace to Jerusalem, and not just Jerusalem, The coming of the king will go out from Jerusalem like a signal to the nations. It will be proclaimed even by God to the ends of the earth. So the peace that Jesus brings is one that is going to touch the whole world. That salvation and peace that Jerusalem desired was going to have global ramifications, We see this in the related prophecy that Matthew quotes, which Roger read for us earlier, Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 13 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Here we see more clearly in view just the extent of the peace that the Messiah is going to bring when he redeems and cleanses his people. It is a greater salvation than they could have longed for. And here we see that that salvation establishes a greater messianic kingdom than many in the crowds had perhaps imagined. Zechariah tells us that the king riding in on a donkey is an announcement that one day the bow and the war horse will be completely cut off from God's people because the kingdom of the Messiah will bring peace to every nation, establishing a kingdom under himself that is going to go from sea to sea to the very ends of the earth. The great Gentile conquerors that the world had raised up and their empires could at best achieve a kind of uneasy peace. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Rome, all of them knew how to create an empire. Perhaps the harder job was how to maintain an empire. Peace in worldly empires depends on a constant military presence to keep all the colonies in line. Secure empires could very quickly become divided, warring states. The curse on David's own house after his sin is that the sword would not depart from his household. We watch as David's own family fights opponents and each other to try and maintain their power. The Messiah that some of the Jews had perhaps hoped for hoped that Jesus could be, could at best achieve this uneasy peace. To be able to rule over a pretty large kingdom for a pretty long time was about as much as anyone could hope for. But Jesus' death and resurrection brings a greater salvation, which achieves a greater peace, which establishes a greater kingdom than Caesar or Napoleon or Charlemagne could ever have imagined an eternity without even a threat of war and a united world kingdom under an everlasting perfect king. Matthew understands this once he has witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Now he can quote Isaiah and Zechariah in his gospel and really understand what it means when Jesus comes into this city on a donkey that day. He saw those greater promises that Jesus was assuring his people he was keeping and would keep. He saw how much better this would be than God's people had even imagined. So those people were right to rejoice as Jesus entered Jerusalem. They weren't even totally wrong in what they were hoping for. They were hoping for what Chronicles taught them to hope for. A Messiah who would sit on the throne of David, reigning from Zion, establishing a secure place where God could dwell with his people. If this was their hope, it was a good one. If this was what they wanted to be saved for, then it was a good desire Many of them just missed exactly what Isaiah and Zechariah were pointing to. They missed the redemption and the reconciliation at the heart of the Messiah's salvation. They missed that this would not mean hoarding treasures and earthly powers, but losing them, trading them. For the sake of a greater kingdom. They were so focused on the small scope of what we compete for every day in this world that they couldn't grasp the scope of what Jesus was planning to do. What an amazing Messiah he really was. David's victories, his peace was just a foretaste of what the promised Messiah was going to accomplish. He was riding into Jerusalem to honor all of God's promises to his people, to bring them a peace that would touch the whole world. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Even as the crowds received him as king, he knew he was coming into Jerusalem to be despised and rejected and killed. To anyone else, The triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the suffering on the cross as a criminal would look like a contradiction. Just as the prophecies about the Messiah's eternal reign and the prophecies about the suffering servant also seemed to be a contradiction, but not for Jesus. He understood the perfection of God's plan. He understood just what the cross was going to do. He saw that by dying in the place of sinners he would reconcile all of them to himself if they trusted in him. And so he would achieve peace between them and God. And they would be his people. And God would make him king over them by raising him from the dead and seating him on a throne. And this would begin God's plan for gathering for himself a great population for Jesus' kingdom, a people to call him Lord, who would look forward to the day when all heaven and earth would be remade as a perfect eternal kingdom for Jesus, where he will be seen to reign over the globe, over all creation. That's what Jesus knew was going to happen. Now the crowd, unknowingly or unwittingly, they proclaim this as they say, Hosanna in the highest. They are extolling Jesus as the Savior, the one worthy of praise, not just from them, not just from the earth, but in the highest heavens. May he save all heaven and earth. That is why the rocks and the trees would have had to sing Jesus' praises that day if his people were silent, not just because he made them, but because he had come to redeem all of it everything. He had come to accomplish a death-defeating, world-conquering, creation-restoring salvation. So now as we look back on this glorious entrance into Jerusalem, and we see that it was part of this road that went through the cross, that went through the grave, We can see just how wonderfully Jesus responded and answered the crowd's cry of Hosanna, save us quickly. We can flip backwards in our Bibles. We can see all the promises that He kept. We can flip forward and see how much He accomplished. This morning, as we witness those crowds celebrating Him as the Messiah, as we anticipate next week, Lord willing, when we will direct our focus on His death and resurrection. We can ask ourselves what they could have asked. Is Jesus as he truly is the Messiah that we long for? Is his salvation the one that we truly want from him? Just like those crowds calling out Hosanna, son of David, we also might be ready to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and King even believe that we are using the scriptures to do so and yet misunderstand what the son of David really came to accomplish. We miss just the kind of king he promises he will be, the salvation he brings, what it means to follow him. And if we misunderstand who he is and what he accomplishes in any way, we can be sure that our picture of Jesus is smaller than Jesus is. We are like the disciples before he comes to Jerusalem. We're looking out at the world around us and we're learning from our neighbors in the world what we want for ourselves. We call good what the world has taught us is good. And even as we encounter Jesus as the scriptures, as they say he's a savior, he's a good savior, we bring all of that baggage the world has given us of what it means for him to be good. Salvation is going to have to mean financial stability. It has to mean that I become a more successful person in the world, that I accomplish everything I want for myself. It has to mean solving the difficult dynamics in our relationships to our satisfaction, taking us from the pain and strife we feel in our circumstances. It might mean giving us a comfortable place as Christians in the culture around us. So then even if we call him a good savior and king, we are missing the greater deliverance he's offering to us. The son of David rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to achieve a greater salvation for his people. And it is one that only came through serving and suffering. And his assurance to James and John was that their place in the kingdom would come through sharing in his sufferings. Jerusalem received him as a triumphant Lord, but they rejected him as the suffering servant. And even many of those who claim to love him now will only receive him if he is their triumphant Lord and gives them a place of triumph without suffering, without serving. Because they would never Join him in suffering, only in triumph without pain. Jesus' greater kingdom came through the cross, and our place in that kingdom comes through a life as exiles and strangers, often the cost at the cost of those very things that we wanted Jesus to give us. We so often miss the Savior because we demand a different salvation. We reject the cornerstone, and so we become a part of a different house. So who is Jesus to you? Are you even aligned with those Pharisees? You've settled in your heart that you would war against everything that he is because it would take away what you want for yourself. You want freedom to establish your own kingdom, your own power. Peter warns you that if you reject him as the cornerstone of your house, you will trip over that stone to your own harm. For he has established a kingdom that will last forever and ever. Are you like the people of Jerusalem? You do want to know him. You you want to love him. You want to call him Savior and Lord. You want him to bring you salvation. But that salvation is just so bound up in promises that you have made on God's behalf. You demand that he keep them, or you will not have him as Lord. And if you were exposed to what it really meant to enter his kingdom, the cost of this world following him as he took up his own cross, you would run and hide and claim you didn't know him. Once we have repented of treating Jesus as the Savior we wanted him to be, we can stare fully on how wonderful a Savior he really is. How much sweeter his eternal heavenly promises are than anything that we can achieve in this world for ourselves. Or even imagine that he would achieve in us. We can set aside our confidence in this world and its fleeting promises, its shaky ground, because now we can set our hope on the rock, on the greater kingdom of the Messiah who saved us through his death and resurrection. The king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey died for sinners so that we could have peace with God. He reconciles us to God by taking away God's wrath for our sin. And in reconciling us to God in himself, he reconciles us to each other. Even now, as the world scorns and rejects him and those who follow him, we begin to enjoy the peace of the cross as we are drawn to each other in our shared hope in Christ. You now, the church, are a testimony to the power of the cross to a mightier salvation and a greater kingdom which long outlasts Rome and anything it ever achieved. This is the real peace that he achieves by the cross. Even in this world, you are experiencing it now by being drawn into his people to worship and glorify him together. And that peace touches more and more people as they trust his salvation, calling him king and waiting for the day when he will return and indeed deliver the final blows of conquering to his enemies. He is still the conqueror. He does ride forth to crush his enemies, but even then he is only worthy to conquer because he is the one who humbled himself and died for his people. And when the last enemy, even death, is defeated we will see his peace from sea to sea, covering the whole world. A world at peace, reflecting perfect peace with God. And then our king will be seen on his throne over a renewed heaven and earth, and he shall reign forever and ever. So with a full view of what a great Messiah he is, and how great a salvation he brings, now we can say and we can trust him to answer when we say, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that Jesus brought about, that his answer to those cries of Hosanna was to save his people from sin and death by humbling himself to die in their place on a cross. We thank you for the victory that that achieved, a resurrection from the dead, ascension to a throne, and hope for an eternal kingdom that will touch all creation forever and ever. So, Father, I pray that we who cry out for salvation would see the reality of who Jesus is and what the Messiah accomplished. And Father, I pray that that would drive from our minds these small, worldly salvations that many of us were hoping for. If there are any who have not been saved, Father, who are hoping in different things, trusting in different things, whether they claim Jesus or not to be the source of that salvation, I pray that as they see the atonement on the cross, his death and resurrection, that they would desire this greater salvation and put their hope in an eternal kingdom, even if that means trading the things that the sinful people of this world love and worship. And I pray that we as a church would help each other to long and hope for that day to hold fast to all the promises made about the son of David so that we can forever and ever delight in the kingdom that he deserves, that we could never have deserved a place in because he ransomed us and died as a servant in our place for our salvation. All praise and glory are due to him now and forever. In his name we pray, amen.